Well, we're in James 5 this morning. We're going to cover verses 7 through 12. So I'm going to start reading, and I'll read our passage, but I'm going to back up just a little bit also for context and include the verses that Drew taught us last week. So I'm going to start with James chapter 5 and verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is merciful, is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So, We come to this passage this morning and James has sort of shifted gears. James is gonna talk to us a lot about suffering, but about what's the answer for suffering. Now, isn't it a wonderful thing that the Lord has given us so many great Christian examples of those who suffered under persecution, under injustice, at the hands of evil men. I always, when I say that, I always think about Corey Ten Boom and the Ten Boom family who, you know, most of you know that story, but who lived in the time of Nazi Germany and saw the injustices and the persecutions against the Jews and they acted. They acted on behalf of the name of the Lord to to rescue those Jews, but they suffered, right? They themselves were put in concentration camps and suffered. But what a testimony that Corey Ten Boom has been to the Christian world. What a testimony she has been. And God gives us those believers like that who bear up under suffering to encourage us. But not only suffering in that kind of context, we all suffer in many ways. We suffer physical illnesses. We suffer death. We suffer loss. We suffer all of those things in this life. And someday we may yet understand persecution for our faith. But James really, in that context, is encouraging the believers in this chapter with the ultimate answer. What is the answer to our suffering? 
What is it that we look forward to at the end that unbelievers have no hope in? So I gave you guys a bunch of questions last week. And if anybody doesn't have their question sheet, they're in the back chair. But I want to ask a lot of questions this morning. I want to work through this text together with you. And we'll ask questions and have uh, some back and forth about this. So first thing I would say, the first question I would ask you is, in this first verse, verse 7, James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He uses this word, therefore. So we always say, wherefore the therefore. Why did James use therefore and what is he referencing in the context of this passage? You were thinking about this all week long, I know, right? Therefore, always, we always use that because we're kind of referencing something else and we're drawing a conclusion. We're saying, okay, because of that, this. And what's the that? What did we talk about in verses one through six? What did Drew talk about last week at length? What was happening with these Jewish believers? Yes, they were suffering great injustice. And as Drew explained at length, some of this could have been even life-threatening because they're withholding wages from the workers. So this was a very, very severe injustice and they were suffering greatly under the hand of probably unbelievers who were taking advantage of them. So that's kind of the context that James is coming into. These Christians, these Jewish Christians are suffering greatly and he wants to encourage them. You know, that's one thing I'll say too is, look how James addresses them. James begins these verses with, be patient, brethren. You know, he's that tender pastoral heart. James many times has to come down hard on them because, because of the things that's happening, because of the severity. But again and again, we see James's tenderness, his compassion, and his love. And also we see now he's shifting from addressing evil, probably unbelieving people, to addressing believers to tell them in kindness how to bear up under suffering. So, What are some of the key, that was the next question. What are some of the key words in these verses that give us a good sense of what James is gonna talk about? What are are the words that were repeated throughout these verses? Patience, that's right. Patience or be patient, okay? What else? Patience is a key one. Endurance, that's right. So let's talk about that a moment. What's the difference between patience and endurance? They're, they're different, right? They're kind of synergistic, but they're different. When we're patient, what does that mean? We're long-suffering, that's right. Yeah, we can be patient without suffering trials though, right? We can be patient. We don't, we can be patient without going through what Corey Tim Boom went through in a Nazi concentration camp. So it is that long suffering. It's that, it's that not jumping to conclusions. That's, it's that not complaining. It's, it's all of that. It's that kind of quiet spirit. But what is endurance implying? 
they are suffering, that's right, and they are being persecuted. So these things go together in this passage is that James is telling them, you have to be patient, you have to wait on something, and you must also endure. And James is gonna tell them, in fact, how they are to endure in this passage. So that's this first verse, be patient therefore, brethren, until what? What event is James teaching them that they must be patient for and endure? The coming of the Lord. I heard that out here, okay. So that's the question too. What does he mean by the coming of the Lord? What is the coming of the Lord? And what's gonna happen at the coming of the Lord? The church will be taken to be with Christ, yeah. Yeah, the Lord, and, and, but what's gonna happen in, those, in that context? What will Christ do? He takes the church to be with himself, right? And what's gonna happen? The marriage, yep. And with respect to evil, he will punish unrighteousness. The Lord will deal with it. And that's kind of a major theme in these verses that we're studying this morning is they're, they're to be patient and wait because Christ is coming to take to be with him. Listen, I love this verse over in Acts 1, verse 9. And you know the context in Acts 1. The Lord has just gone to heaven. He is going to heaven. And uh, Acts 1, verse 9. We back up to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So that's what we call the ascension of Christ, right? That he ascended into heaven. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Angels, we assume, right? Angels were standing beside the apostles. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So that was the promise. That was the promise. And you realize, and we're gonna talk about this in a moment, but at the ascension of Christ, from that moment, we are actually in the latter days because the next event will be Christ's coming, Christ coming for his church. So we live now in the latter days. And that's basically what the angels are telling the apostles is, so get about your business and do your work because he's coming again. And as you saw him going to heaven, someday he's gonna come again. So this is what James is encouraging these suffering believers with um, these scattered Jews who are facing great persecution, just what the angel said, he will come again. And that's the encouragement. So James uses a really good analogy, however, to teach these believers how they should wait. He uses the analogy of a farmer. And I think this is interesting because Jesus used it a lot. This is the world they lived in, right? They lived in a very agricultural and agrarian society. Think of all the parables that our Lord taught using the seed and the sower, the wheat and the tares, the harvest. So James points them right back to something they are all very, very familiar with. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil 
being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. So I know Drew's a farmer, he said this last week, but how do farmers wait patiently for their crops? And what, what can we learn from farmers about waiting patiently for their crops? Who else was a farmer, anybody? Anybody grow up farming? My dad did, my granddad, my great-granddad. In fact, I was taking my dad to an appointment yesterday and I said, Dad, let's just talk about the Morris family history because he grew up farming and as he would say, dirt farming and plowing peanuts, you know. That was his life and it was my grandfather's life, his dad and my great-grandfather and that's how they made their living. And, but what is it about farmers that teaches us about patience? Perfect. That's exactly what Susan said. They depend upon the Lord, right? That's their whole life is dependent on the Lord because the farmers can plow the fields, right? Hopefully straight rows, right? That's always the sign of a good farmer. They they plow the straight rows, right? And my dad and my granddad used to always laugh and say, now they all have GPS units on their tractors, you know, and they, they, but they did, the old guys did it, you know, the hard way. But they can plow the rows, they can plant the seed, they can water. A lot of times in James's day, they didn't have these big agricultural stations like you'll see up in the panhandle and everywhere else, you know, these big uh, uh, irrigation uh, things on, on wheels and all this. They depended on what? The rain, and that's what James is teaching them here, the early and the latter rains. So people say that was, those were the rains in Palestine in the fall and in the spring. They depended upon those rains. So they depended upon, as Susan said, the Lord. And farmers still depend upon the Lord. We have friends who are big wheat farmers in Kansas and uh, who are strong believers. But when I get together with them in Colorado this summer, you know, and I'll talk to them about the wheat and they'll say, well, we got the rain at the wrong time or we didn't get the rain this year or whatever. It's all still in the Lord's control. So taking that analogy, how does that encourage us about the return of Christ and suffering? Jim, it's on the tip of your tongue, I see. We have faith, yeah. He will come. Yes. His right time, that's exactly right. You hear what Jim said is we have to have faith and be patient and wait. We're gonna talk about this in a moment because the angels made that promise almost 2,000 years ago, right? And people would say, so where is the coming of the Lord? You hear that in Peter, right? We'll talk about what Peter had to say about this. But we have to trust that this is God's promise, that Jesus Christ is coming again someday. He will come. And what we are commanded to do is to wait patiently. So why do we find comfort in the coming of the Lord? And why would James's believers have found comfort? Why was that a comfort to them? And why is it a comfort to us? that the Lord is coming again. Let's start with the believers in James's time. As James is writing to them, why would the coming of the Lord have been a comfort to them? In light of the circumstances we talked about they were going through. Yes, Susan says he's a righteous and a just judge and he will take 
the actions that are necessary. That's right. So it's exactly right. So he sees what's happening, right? He sees the injustices. Does God miss anything in this world? Is there anything that he cannot see or does not know? God's purposed all things, right? He sees and he knows all things. So when Christ comes again, he's going to do what? We talked about this a moment ago. He'll bring justice. That's exactly right. And by the way, what does that tell us about how we should act in the face of injustice? If Christ is bringing justice, are we to take justice? Are we to take revenge? What do the scriptures teach us about? Vengeance is his, says the Lord. That's exactly right. So we, when we suffer, when we endure, let's just be honest. When we look at this world around us, it is filled with evil. It is filled with wickedness. It is filled with, we see our own country. It's going down the tubes morally and it just outrages us and makes us angry. But how do we respond to this? We don't respond in anger. We have a righteous anger and righteous indignation, but we preach the gospel, right? We live godly lives. We walk before the Lord as he would have us to walk, but we don't take revenge because vengeance is mine. The Lord will repay. The Lord is coming, and that's James's promise. He's telling these believers, take heart, take hope, because I will set all things right. God will set all things right when he comes. That's ultimately what our hope is, that he will set things right in this world. So that's why we should find comfort and hope. Let's look at Titus chapter two. There is so much we could read in the New Testament about this, but Titus chapter two is a great word from Paul about this, about the coming of the Lord and why it gives us hope. Titus chapter two, we start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So that's the promise. We look for the coming of the Lord. And as Paul said, that is the blessed hope, the appearing of our and of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he wants us to live as a people zealous for good works. That's how he would have us to live in this life. So in light of these things, James, coming back to James, James is going to tell us in verse eight, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So how do we strengthen our hearts knowing that the coming of the Lord is at hand and why should we strengthen our hearts? How does this strengthen our hearts knowing that the Lord is coming? Yeah, meditating on the word, the truth about who God is. How do we strengthen our hearts too? Why should we strengthen our hearts? What's that? So that we can endure. That's exactly right. That's what James is telling them. 
That's the heart of endurance is strengthening your hearts. If you strengthen your hearts, you strengthen yourself in the inner man, that allows you to endure. And that is, as Susan said, that is walking with the Lord, that is in his word, that is in prayer, that is living a godly life, that is strengthening your hearts, trusting in him, trusting in his promises, trusting in all that he's given us. That's how we strengthen ourselves in our hearts. So, James has encouraged us that we ought to look to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be patient. And then in verses, give me one second here, verses nine through 11, James is gonna further discuss this, the coming of the Lord Jesus and our patience. James is gonna talk about living righteously because he's gonna come as judge. And we should be encouraged in our suffering by the example of other faithful believers such as the prophets, such as, as Job. So he's also gonna talk though about a besetting sin among believers. Verse nine, do not complain brethren against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So when we're in trials, when we're in suffering, what is a besetting sin that can fall upon us that James is talking about here with these Jewish believers? What can happen when we're suffering, when we're in trials? Complaining, grumbling, that's exactly right. And why does that happen? We lose hope, that's right. It's kind of a natural thing that we will do as humans, right, in sin. We can complain and grumble. We all do it, right? When we, when we suffer, it, <laughs> Jim doesn't know. But when we suffer to any degree, it's very easy for us to complain and grumble. And why is that a particularly bad thing among believers that we complain and grumble? And James is talking about complaining and grumbling to one another. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. They're complaining against one another. What do you think is going on there? So they're suffering under these injustices. James is telling them to be patient, to endure, but they're complaining. What? Yeah. 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 I hope you heard everything that Preston said, but you know the problem is when we complain, we should we should be instead of complaining against one another. Oh, they didn't help me. Oh, they're not getting enough meals on the meal train for me. Or X, Y, Z. All these things. We shouldn't be complaining and grumbling again. We should be what encouraging one another and building one another up. That's what the Lord would have us to do, right? That's what should happen in the body of Christ. And 
the real sin here when we complain and grumble against one another, we're not just complaining against one another, we're complaining against who? We're complaining against the Lord, that's exactly right. Um, Because we've just said, just like the farmer, all things are in his hand, he sends the rain, he makes the crops to grow, we harvest them, but he causes all things to happen. And whatever happens in our lives, whatever circumstances, whether we are persecuted, whether all those bad things happen, whether we have a death in our family, whether we have sickness, whether we have cancer, whether we have a financial disaster and lose our jobs, this is all God's plan, right? This is all God's purpose. And that's why grumbling and complaining against one another hurts other believers, doesn't build them up in Christ, but also ultimately it's just complaining against the Lord. God, why? Are, I mean, we know that in our hearts too. We're just kind of bitter and angry against the Lord sometimes. Lord, why did this happen to me? And why am I not getting out of this problem? Lord, why? Why, why, why? So let's talk about this a moment. What's the opposite? When trials come, what's the opposite of complaining and grumbling? And how should we respond in the body of Christ? Gratefulness. How how are you grateful in trials? That's a wonderful answer, but how are you grateful? What makes you grateful in trials? Yeah, it is going to produce that patient endurance. And he quoted James chapter 1 because this is how James started this book. James 1, 2 and following. James talked about to be patient in trials, to endure. That's right. It builds in us that Christian character. Have you ever, I know it's hard, but have you ever been in a situation like that where you're suffering? You know, it's really hard, but as Brandon was saying, you know what, you know If you're faithful, God is going to answer. He's going to deliver you. Now, if you die, he's gonna deliver you to heaven, right? That's what's gonna happen, but he is going to deliver you and it builds that character. Have you ever been to a funeral where, I'll just tell you a number of years ago, I was at a funeral of a dear friend, a family whose teenage daughter had been killed just tragically in a wreck, godly, godly Christian girl. And she was driving down a gravel road. And you know how on those gravel roads, if you ever drive in the country, you could fishtail and, and the back end of your car get out from under you. And that's what happened. She hit a tree and had a major chest injury and it killed her. And the dad is such a godly man. This was a family grew up on the mission field. Their, their, their uh, parents were missionaries in Ecuador. And the dad's an elder at a Bible church in McKinney. And, and when David got up and spoke at the funeral about his daughter, he delivered one of those messages just of grace and glory and thanksgiving to God for his daughter's life and, and God's mercy and goodness. And I just, you're just edified. You're just encouraged, aren't you, when those things happen because you understand they're grieving deeply. They're suffering deeply in their hearts and yet they can stand and give thanks to God. And doesn't it, I mean, how do you feel when you hear that? Aren't you encouraged? Aren't you uplifted? You know, I'll have to say, we buried a dear brother, David Zaposodi. Uh, uh, we celebrated his life a month ago. And Becca got up and gave a testimony about David's life and, and 
the one thing she said in that ceremony that I just stood with me was, when you go through something like this, you have to have an anchor. You have to have Jesus as your anchor. And you know, I told her, that's what we all needed to hear. Instead of grumbling and complaining, we need to see somebody who's going through suffering who says, Jesus is my anchor. Jesus is my anchor. And that's the opposite of all of this. And that's what James is encouraging these believers. Don't complain against one another. Don't grumble. Encourage one another. Build one another up. And when you're going through these trials, have that attitude that I'm thankful to God. He's going to pull me through this. He's going to take me through this, this great suffering. So, James is going to now talk about the judge standing at the door. James says not to complain against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So what does it mean when James says the judge is standing at the door? And who is the judge, first off? The Lord, Jesus Christ. And I think Susan's right. In this context, it's probably Christ because he's been talking about the coming of Christ. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 25 that behold, he's standing right at the door, right? So this is the Lord Jesus. He's standing right at the door. But why does he talk about him as judge in light of what he's just been talking about with besetting sins? He's warning these believers, right? He's giving them a warning. If you get into this pattern of grumbling and complaining, complaining against the Lord, what's the concern here? Maybe they're not believers. Maybe he's warning them that if you get in this pattern of complaining and grumbling and grumbling against the Lord, you need to look in your heart and understand to see whether you really are his, whether you really know him or not. That, I think, is what James is teaching them here because he is coming. He is coming also as judge. And you don't want to stand before him in judgment. You want to be his. You want to know him. And I think that's what James is warning them about here in this passage. So, the judge is standing right at the door. And then James is going to talk about... Let me back up a moment. I didn't talk about this issue of, in verse 8... We're talking about the judge at the door. I didn't talk about this issue of the Lord is at hand. Let's talk about this for a moment. How do we understand this concept that the Lord is at hand? Because this is what James was teaching. And the Lord hasn't been here for now 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years since James wrote this book. The judge is near. He's at the door. He's at hand. How do we understand this? What are some verses that come to mind? Yeah, Chris is quoting 2 Peter 3.9, and we can look there at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Actually, you know what? I apologize. I have got the wrong verse here. Yeah. Yeah, let me back up. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is, present, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to come to, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I have, oh, here it is, verse eight. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this is Peter's explanation here is, the Lord is not slow. People say, you know, the old saying is, the Lord may be slow, but he's always on time, right? He's never late. This is God's purpose. And Peter tells us why. God is waiting until all of the church of Jesus Christ comes to him. All of his elect are, sl- are saved. But you know something? We are warned again and again, even Jesus warned us that we must be ready. The Lord could come at any time that we must live our lives in preparation. I gave you some long passages in the question and we won't read all those passages, but let's go back and look at Matthew chapter 25. I'm not gonna read that whole chapter because it's a long chapter, but we can pick up in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed in my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is Matthew 25. And I actually meant to read Matthew, I apologize. Matthew, I've got my outline here, I apologize. Matthew chapter Yeah, 20, let's go to Luke 21. This is called having too many notes up here this morning. (laughs) Luke chapter 21, verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fanning from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it 
and know it for yourselves that the summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that day come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus is teaching us that these things are imminent, that these things will happen. The Lord teaches us to live our lives before him as righteous, godly people because he is standing at the door. His coming is imminent and could come at any time. And there's no greater reason that we should take hope that his coming is near and he is right at the door because he himself has told us that, that he is right at the door. So let's go back now to James 5. I'm sorry for that little hiatus there, but I meant to talk about that because people say, so what is this? He's saying he's near and he hasn't come. Well, the one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day with the Lord. The Lord himself told us to prepare. In fact, Paul also said this in Romans 13, the night is far past, the day is dawning. Paul told us that we must prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So, James is gonna give us some great encouragement now for these believers. The Lord is coming, he's gonna set things straight. You've got to patiently endure your suffering. And he's gonna say, look at some of the great examples who've gone before you. That is, look at the prophets. So this was one of my questions here. How do the prophets encourage us? And can you think of any of the prophets who suffered greatly, who encourage us by their lives and what they went through? I know you've been thinking about this all week. Almost all of them, right. How about some people would call him the great prophet, the biggest book in the Old Testament. Who wrote the biggest book in the Old Testament? Jeremiah, actually. Jeremiah. So Jeremiah suffered greatly, didn't he? Do you know about Jeremiah's sufferings? He suffered under King Jehoiakim greatly. And everything that Jehoiakim stood for, Jeremiah stood against, basically. And Jeremiah preached against all the injustices, all the things that were happening in Israel. And he stood against the king, and he suffered greatly. And, but also Isaiah. Somebody mentioned Isaiah. Isaiah suffered, didn't he? What's the, what's the story about Isaiah's death? Do you know? I mean, this is kind of what's rumored what happened to, to Isaiah. He was sawn in two under also one of the great wicked kings of Israel, Manasseh. Manasseh also, it's rumored, sawed Isaiah in two. Who else suffered? Another prophet. Elisha and Elijah suffered, right? They were always persecuted by the kings, right? Anyone else? Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel was carried away into captivity. So what can we learn from the suffering of the prophets and why did they suffer? James tells us they suffered because of what? Verse 10. They spoke in the name of the Lord. That's exactly right. 
They endured, they were patient, and they spoke in the name of the Lord. And that's why they suffered. But what was the reward of the prophets? The prophets were blessed. Yes, it was heaven. God gave them visions of heaven, all of their prophecies. God rewarded their endurance. In fact, they're in the Believer's Hall of Fame, right, in in Hebrews 11, where, where he talks about the prophets and their endurance too. Okay, so that's how we can be encouraged by the prophets. They endured social injustice, and that would encourage James's believers in this day because they endured great social injustice and great persecution. But who else does James call out as someone who should encourage us in suffering? Who else does he mention here? Verse 11, Job. So did, was Job persecuted? Maybe he was persecuted by his friends. Job's suffering though was a little different. He wasn't sawn in two by Manasseh or thrown in prison. He wasn't told he had to go marry a prostitute as a wife, right? Hosea. How did Job suffer? What were his trials? Still ahead, Paul. He suffered at the hand of Satan, that's right. But what were his sufferings? They were physical, weren't they? He lost his family. He lost all he had, basically, except for his wife. He lost everything, right? His sufferings were not those of persecution, but they were physical sufferings. They were more like the sufferings that we can go through, right? Whether that's cancer, whatever illness we go through, the loss of all of our possessions, the loss of everything we have, those are the sufferings, right? So James is being pretty inclusive here. He's talking about persecutions, but he also wants to remind these believers that you should look at someone who suffered as Job did, physical suffering for encouragement. So how was Job rewarded? And how did Job endure? Let's just talk about this a moment. How did Job endure? Job complained, there were some complaints in Job, but what was it that Job never abandoned? his love for the Lord, and ultimately his faith in the Lord. He repented, right, at the end of Job. The Lord rebuked him, but Job repented. Ultimately, he never gave up his faith. He endured in his faith in the Lord, right? So that's how we find encouragement from the life of Job. It's his endurance. And what does James tell us in verse 11? The outcome of the Lord's dealings with Job were what? They were full of compassion and mercy, right? That's what we have to remember in all of our sufferings, no matter how great they are, they were great for Job. I mean, that's just about unimaginable what happened to Job. No matter how great they were, the Lord through all of that, the Lord through Isaiah's life, through Jeremiah, through all the prophets, he was full of compassion and mercy. Isn't that something we kind of have to tell ourselves sometimes when we're in suffering is that, Lord, you're, you're full of compassion. Lord, you are the merciful God. No matter how heavy the weight of suffering is upon us, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy and he will ultimately reward us. You know, we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. We may die. The Lord may not come in our lifetime but we would go to be with him immediately. That ultimately is our reward, whether by life or by death, we will be with Jesus Christ. 
So, as we come here the last five minutes, we come to verse 12. This is a little bit different, verse 12. And some people would have included verse 12 with the next section, but I think it kind of ties into these things Job has been encouraging these believers about. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So here's the question I posed in the questions I gave out to you. What's going on here? And James is lifting this, these words almost identically from whose words in Matthew? Jesus, right? Jesus said this in Matthew 5. I am gonna have one reference right this morning. <laughs> Matthew 5. Jesus said that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Pull up my reference here, I apologize. Matthew 5.33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no earth at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. So James, you know, he grew up with Jesus. He heard these words, and he takes these words almost identically. So what's going on here with O's? This is not four-letter vulgarity, profanity, but what might these O's or this swearing have looked like in James's day, and what was the problem with them? Can anybody do their homework? Anybody think about this? They were probably common phrases like, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, I promise you I will pay my debts. You know, that's the kind of thing. By the name of the Lord, I will do this, right? Or by the temple that stands in Jerusalem and all the gold in it, I will do this. They were these common phrases that they would have used, right? That ultimately had no meaning to them, right? They didn't care about the Lord. They did, these were just, in that sense, profanity. They made the sacred things like the name of the Lord common. So they took these oaths in that sense and really profaned God's name. I mean, it, we, it happens, we see it. OMG is the same way when people say that. It takes, it's just become a common, common thing that profanes the name of God, you know? Oh my God, we, people just say that like rolls off their tongue, but it ultimately it is one of these kind of phrases that profanes and dishonors the name of God. And that's what James is dealing with. It also becomes a matter of integrity, right? And that I think is what James is getting at as well, is that you don't have to swear by the living God. You don't have to swear by the temple or anything else. Just say yes, just say no, just show the integrity of your heart and don't profane the name of the living God. So I think this kind of ties back into these verses where James is telling believers to live godly lives before him, to live with integrity, to live waiting and hoping for the Lord's return. As Paul said, to live as people zealous for good works. 
who love God. So let's just talk about, I, and I actually have my outline that I'll pass out to you guys before we break. Um, but let's just talk about some applications. So, so life on this earth is gonna be filled with a lot of sorrow, right? It's gonna be filled with a lot of trials and a lot of grief for us as believers. It just is by definition. We'll have death that faces us. We'll have sickness. We're kind of a young people, or some of us are older, but you know what? We're gonna face death in this, and we may yet face persecution, but we have hope. I mean, ultimately, 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 we have hope. Whether by life or by death, we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ, and wouldn't it be glorious if we're living when he comes to take us? right? We will be with him. He will set all things right. All the wickedness and the evil that we see in this world, he's going to deal with it. He'll set it right. He would not have us to be out there as social justice warriors who make that as our crusade in life. He would have us to be warriors for Jesus Christ, to be godly, to be holy, to be reverent, to be quiet, to be patient, to endure. That's how he would have us to live in this life. Also, again, coming back to this issue, our trials should not cause us to complain against one another. Our trials should cause us to build one another up and edify one another. And also, we as believers have to be sensitive to people who are in the middle of trials, right? We have to understand that they're under heavy burdens and heavy grief. We have to kind of cut them a little bit of slack in that sense too, but we need to minister to them. We need to wrap our arms around them in Christ and encourage them, pray with them, bring them meals when they need meals, but wrap the love of Jesus Christ around them. And if you're in trials, remember, people are looking at you People are always looking at you. How are they bearing up under these trials? Because my friend who spoke those words at the funeral of his daughter, I, went to, I was at the graveside and I walked up to David and said, David, I don't know how you did that. And he said, I didn't think I could. He said, until I walked up on that podium, he said, but I was trusting God and God gave me the ability to say those words in praise of his name. And you know, that's what people need to hear. That's what people need to see from you because we're all wondering, how can you do this? How can you bear up under this trial of cancer or losing a loved one or losing your job? Give them words of praise and encouragement. You know something? This is hard, but God is my strength. Jesus is my anchor. He's the one who's holding me up through these trials. And live lives of integrity before the world. Let the words that come out of your mouth be yes, and no, let the words that come out of your mouth be trustworthy and let them give honor and reverence to the Lord in all that you do. To end this lesson we say, and Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Isn't that our hope and our joy? So I'm gonna pass these around. It's just one page, but these were actually not the questions. If you guys wanna pass those around. These are my, I did do a full outline like we normally do. And then I'll pray for us and we can be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Oh God, we thank you, your coming. Lord, in our heart of hearts as believers, we long to be with you. We long for your kingdom. Lord, when sickness will be gone, when you'll wipe every tear from our eye, there'll be no death, there'll be no sorrow. There'll be joy, there'll be glory, Lord, before you. God, make us a patient people. Help us to endure.
God, when we go through trials, oh God, give us trust in you. Strengthen our hearts, strengthen us in the inner man that we might bring you glory in all that we say. And Lord, as we come to worship you now the next hour, may we bring you praises. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.